I'm Pastor Joel of Heart City Church. And friends, I am so excited for the empty tomb that reveals Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And you may be thinking, Joel, why are you so excited about an event that took place 2,000 years ago? My friend, that event means our first enemy, Satan, is a defeated foe. And that encourages me as I look around our world. The needless bloodshed in Ukraine, the ravages of sickness and disease, the poverty and the selfishness we see in our own cities and in our own hearts. I mean, how do we explain humanity's inability to make any headway even as we have so many achievements and advancements? Well, we're unable to because of Satan, the devil, an evil supernatural cosmic being, humanity's first enemy. And Satan tricked our first parents, Adam and Eve, to obey him instead of God. And as a result of this rebellion, Satan gained power and control in this world. That's why Paul will describe the devil as the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2.2. It's why the devil could offer Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth if Jesus would simply bow down to him. Matthew 4, verses 8 and 9. We all became sons of disobedience or children of the devil, as Jesus himself will say in John 8, 44. But the good news, my friends, is God made a promise way back in Genesis 3, 15, right after the first rebellion, that the seed of the woman would one day crush the head of the serpent, that is the devil. And we see that promise fulfilled when Jesus, the eternal Son of God, became that promised seed, being born of woman in the fullness of time. And as he began his conquest of Satan, we hear Jesus rejoice after he sends disciples out with the gospel and they come back so happy because the demons are subject to them. We hear Jesus say, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, Luke 10, 18. And it is at the cross where Jesus disarms Satan and his minions by paying for our sins, Colossians 2, 13 through 15. But I especially want us to see today that it is in the resurrection from the dead that Jesus began the final conquest of Satan. Hebrews 2 verses 14 and 15 tell us, Since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, he, Jesus, too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Hebrews is telling us that Jesus became like us, flesh and blood, in order to die. Think about this with me. God is all-powerful. Jesus, the Son of God, is all-powerful. They could have easily dispatched of Satan with merely a word, but instead they chose to rescue us by sending Jesus to conquer death by dying and rising. Why this way? Think about it. If Jesus simply decides to speak a word and destroy Satan, we all would be destroyed as well because Satan held us under his power, under the power of death. This is why Jesus came in our flesh and he died. And by his resurrection, we now are no longer under the power of death. And so this breaks us free from our slavish fear of death. And I hope you see this is true for you. That the worst thing the devil can do is, is kill you and send you to be with the one you love, your risen Savior. And now you can see why we not need to be overly distressed about our world either. Because Jesus is continuing his conquest of Satan, having bound him up so that he could not deceive the nations any longer, Revelation 20. And you may say, Joel, 
I gotta be honest, Satan seems to be winning when I look at the world. I disagree, my friend. I read the Old Testament, and the gospel sure doesn't go very far, and it's not very effective for the first 2,000 years. You have a small remnant of a tiny little nation named Israel who have a relationship with God. What happens after Jesus is raised from the dead and pours out his Holy Spirit? You have a small band of disciples who suddenly have no fear of death, and they're going throughout the world sharing the gospel. And in the next 2,000 years since the resurrection, the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth, and it is continuing to snatch folks from Satan. Yesterday, I talked to a pastor friend who's teaching excited students in the Southern Hemisphere about Jesus. Think about it. A man in the wilds of Indiana is sharing the gospel in lands that are hearing it for the first time. You could have never dreamed about this prior to the resurrection of Jesus. Yes, my friends, the devil is still mighty, and yeah, he seems pretty angry today, but as John Davenant says, those who are vanquished are always more angry than powerful. The devil's fate is sealed, my friend, so take heart. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet because Jesus crushed him in his resurrection. Romans 16, 20. My friend, remember who you are and who you belong to. Hi, I'm Pastor Joel of Heart City Church, and this week we are celebrating the greatest triumph in human history. Jesus burst forth from the grave and conquered death, our last great enemy. We're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, Jesus' victory over the grave is the death of death. But today, I want us to see his triumph also establishes another wonderful reality. It establishes that those who believe in the risen Son are free from sin. I want you to listen to John's account in chapter 20, verses 19 to 23, when Jesus appears to his disciples for the first time. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. In this passage, this resurrection account, Jesus proclaims twice, Peace be with you. And he shows them his hands and sides. And then immediately after assuring them that they have peace, Jesus gives them the Holy Spirit and sends them off to do what his Father had sent him to do, namely, to tell all that their sins could be forgiven by believing the good news of what Jesus had accomplished. Now, we rightly tend to focus on the cross as being the place where our sins were conquered and dealt with. Sacrifice was required to pay for our sins. Hebrews 9.26 tells us, Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. But without the empty tomb, you and I don't truly have any assurance that we are forgiven of all our sins. Have you ever thought about that? About the resurrection being necessary for us to have peace with our holy God? That if Jesus doesn't walk out of the tomb, we have no assurance of our forgiveness. The Apostle Paul has thought about it because he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, And if Christ has not been raised, 
Your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Do you hear that? Paul is saying that our faith is worthless if Christ Jesus stayed in the grave. What do you mean, Paul? Paul is saying that if Jesus is not risen, then the curse of sin remained on him. That the cross did not atone for, pay for our rebellion, absolve us of our cosmic treason. And if every sin wasn't dealt with, friend, you and I have to answer to God for our sins. On that last day, we'll have to stand before God's holy throne and watch the tape of our life play back. Every wicked thought, every evil word, every failure to love others, every selfish moment, we'd be held accountable before God. That is why the resurrection is so central, absolutely necessary to our faith. The empty tomb means we can rest assured that Jesus' blood was sufficient to pay for all our sins. I love what Gerhardus Voss writes. We find in the resurrection the strongest possible assurance of pardon and peace. Brothers, when Christ rose on Easter morning, he left behind him in the depths of the grave every one of our sins. There they remain buried from the sight of God so completely that even in the day of judgment, they will not be able to rise up against us anymore. In simple terms, Voss is saying that if you believe and receive that Jesus was raised for the dead for you, you have an ironclad guarantee you have peace and pardon. That in fact, for God to count any of your sins against you, it would require him to yank his son off his heavenly throne and stuff Jesus back in the tomb and roll back the stone. <laughs> That's not happening. How is that for an insurance policy? So I ask you, friend, do you know that peace? The calming presence of the risen Lord Jesus. If you don't, I invite you to consider this promise from Romans 10:9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Take that verse, roll it around in your hand like a pearl, and consider what a blessing that is. And then go out and find a good church where you can have this message reinforced in your life so that you can live as one confident that Jesus has broken sin's grip on you and press on in faith, because there is no greater glory than to know Christ and the power of his resurrection even today, to forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead, that new creation glory that is far more than you and I could ever ask for or imagine. My friend, remember who you are and who you belong to. Do you remember the first funeral you ever attended? My first funeral was my Grandpa Humpley's when I was just a five-year-old boy. I remembered Grandpa live, and even though they dressed him up to look so nice, it didn't feel right at all. Looking at him, death seemed so absolute, so cold. It seemed so game over as they put him in the ground and the dirt was shoveled on. I thought, what is the point of our bodies if they rot away after we die? This was reinforced by the funeral talk. You ever heard someone say that the body in the coffin is no longer the person? It's okay, Joel. That's not Grandpa. He's in heaven now. This way of thinking is obviously driven by the experience of seeing a body without life. But it is also pagan Greek thought, which is unbiblical. They viewed the bodies as prison houses of the soul to be released at death. But the Bible teaches us that not only do we have bodies, but that we are our bodies. And when a person belongs to Jesus, 
not just their soul, but their body as well, belongs to Jesus. Our confession says, The souls of believers are at their death, made perfect in holiness, and do immediately pass into glory, and their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in the grave until the resurrection. Our bodies still belong to Jesus and are waiting for the last day to be reunited with our souls. Hi, I'm Pastor Joel of Heart City Church, and this week we're considering the glory of the resurrection. And 1 Corinthians 15 is a chapter designated solely to the resurrection. And in it, Paul answers our question about the sort of body we will have after the resurrection. He says in verse 44, It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. I believe this to be one of the most important things Paul ever writes on the resurrection. Paul says, if there is a natural body, which there is, then it follows that there is a greater body, a spiritual body, that is to come after. And Paul is not saying spiritual like immaterial. Capitalize that S. We will have restored bodies made glorious by the Holy Spirit. We will not be immaterial beings floating on the clouds in heaven. Rather, we receive glorified bodies after these earthly bodies die, like Jesus' body when he walked out of the grave. Remember that interesting scene after the resurrection where Jesus appeared to his disciples? In Luke 24, verses 37 to 43, we read, They were startled and frightened, thinking they had saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still not, did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. So why does Jesus tell them to touch him? Why does Jesus eat a piece of fish? Jesus is showing us that the resurrection life to come means renewed physical bodies in a renewed physical earth. He is showing us that the good things from this creation don't simply come to an end. The devil did not win in his attempt to wreck God's good creation. Creation comes back as glorified through the resurrection of Jesus. Simply put, my friends, matter matters to God. God promises to restore all things. And what a comfort this is in a world of suffering and destruction. It is what makes the resurrection central to the Christian faith, the certain hope we hold forth in the midst of a decaying world. God promises to restore all things. John Updike says, Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. So spend time thanking God for the resurrection of his son. And look in the mirror and thank God that you'll soon be getting a new suit. Sure, it is mystery. It's hard to comprehend. But as Eugene Peterson once said, mystery is not the absence of meaning, but the presence of far more meaning than we can comprehend. My friend, remember who you are and who you belong to. On Thanksgiving Day, 1983, 
Sesame Street aired a unique episode because one of the human actors, Will Lee, had died of a heart attack. For those of you who remember, Lee played the character Mr. Hooper, who ran the variety store and made milkshakes for everyone. This created a dilemma for the producers. Would they say that Mr. Hooper had simply retired and moved to the beach? Or would they make known his death to millions of children who loved him? The reveal took place in a scene where Big Bird is handing out pictures that he had drawn as gifts for everyone. He gets the last one and we see that it's a picture of Mr. Hooper. As Big Bird heads off to the store, Maria says, Don't you remember that we told you Mr. Hooper died? He's dead. Big Bird answers, Oh yeah, I remember. Well, I'll give it to him when he gets back. And Susan says, Mr. Hooper isn't coming back. When people die, they don't come back ever. Big Bird begins to tremble at this news and he says, Ever? And Susan says, No, never. What a sad, sad message 10 million children heard that day. Hi, I'm Pastor Joel of Heart City Church and friends, I have a much better message for you than enjoy your friends and milkshakes now for tomorrow we die. Yesterday we celebrated Easter commemorating the greatest victory in human history, Jesus Christ conquered our last and greatest enemy, death, when he rose from the dead. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul declares... He is risen, and that the Old Testament was always predicting this. And Paul will add that there was over 500 witnesses who saw the risen Lord Jesus. The evidence, friends, for Jesus' resurrection is overwhelming, even to the most skeptical of folks. And this is infinitely better news than what our culture or Corinth has to offer. You see, friends, death is not normal. It was not part of the created world that got established. But when our first parents disobeyed God, they opened the door for this supernatural cosmic enemy, death, to enter into our world and to begin its reign. In Romans 5, verses 12 to 14, Paul describes death as this evil overlord that seeks to snatch us one by one out of this world. If you've ever seen the body of a departed loved one, you can see death's work. And should the Lord tarry, each one of us will one day be separated from our body and will also leave behind those we love. Death is a dreadful enemy. But for the Christian, we have good news. Our enemy is also God's enemy. And the Father sent his eternal Son, Jesus, into our world and in our flesh. Hebrews 12, verses 14 and 15 tell us, Since the children have flesh and blood, he, Jesus, too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. This is wonderful news, isn't it? In love, God sent his Son to be our friend and Savior and to face off against our last enemy. And Jesus went to the cross where Colossians 2.15 tells us, he disarmed every one of our cosmic enemies who were out to hurt and destroy us. And after resting in the grave on the seventh day, 
like God did in the original creation, Jesus began the new creation by his resurrection from the dead. So for those united to him, death has lost its sting. You see, when we die, we simply fall asleep in Jesus' arms until the day of our own resurrection. Isn't this better news than eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die? In fact, as Christians united to Christ, we don't even have to wait till tomorrow. I close with encouragement from Charles Spurgeon to practice dying every day to this world in preparation for the better one to come. He writes, No man would find it difficult to die who died every day. He would have practiced it so often that he would only have to die but once more. Like the singer who's been through his rehearsals and is perfect in his part and has but to pour forth the notes once for all and have done. Happy are they who every morning go down to the Jordan's brink and wade into the stream in fellowship with Christ, dying in the Lord's death, being crucified on his cross and raised in his resurrection. God, teach us this art and he shall have the glory of it. Amen. Die every day, my friend, to God's glory and remember who you are and who you belong to. The older I get, the more I realize that my greatest sin is not loving my Lord as I ought. And we see that love nowhere more clearly than on Good Friday. Luke writes in Luke 23 verses 44 to 48, It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. Hi. I'm Pastor Joel of Heart City Church. Friends, the Bible teaches us that from the time we were born, we are racking up infinite debt for every wrong we do, for every failure to do what we should have done. We all owe God, holy God, a massive debt. And maybe you're asking, Joel, who could pay my massive debt? I'm so glad you asked. My friend, God the Father loves you and provided a glorious way for all your debts to be paid. That's why Jesus came, the Father's love for you, who owed him so much. The hymn writer says, well, I had a debt I could not pay. He paid the debt he did not owe. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, amazing grace all day long. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. Friend, are you putting your whole hope and all your trust in Jesus' death on the cross to make you right with God? Are you choosing to be Jesus' disciple because he says that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life? John 14, 6. Our culture tells you a counter message. It tells you that there are many different and equal ways to God and you can choose what you like best. Friend, the Bible is very clear that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, Jesus came and died as a sign of the Father's love for you. So let me ask you the question from another perspective. 
If you were a father and you had an only child you loved dearly and seeing folks who owed you a massive debt they could not pay in your pity, you sent to them your only son to make the payment. He took a body that would pay the toll equal to the, all the debts of every debtor. If you, as a father, had sent your only son to such an excruciating death on the cross, how would you feel if a person stood before you on that last day and said, thank you very much for your son's sacrifice, but I figured all ways are equal in your sight. If you were the father, and I tread lightly here because we dare not place ourselves in his place, but at least on a human level, if you gave up your only child to die horribly to save a person, would you say, oh, that's fine, you chose another way, it's all the same to me. My friend, I have no problem with you exploring other religions. I've done so myself. But would you first explore fully the gospel, the gospel of a savior who suffered for your failures? before you decide to go another way. Wouldn't you want to be informed enough to know what you're rejecting? If you're going to choose the smiling face of Buddha or plead your own goodness, know that you're rejecting the face of Jesus, bleeding, thorns buried in his scalp, spittle running down his face. And know that in that ragged, bloodied face, you don't only see Jesus' love, you also see the love of the Father. As you come to know Jesus, you come to know the Heavenly Father's love for you. I will only speak for myself here, but I've come to the realization that I want to see less of me in the face of Jesus and more of Jesus in the face of me as he makes me more and more into his disciple. As I said when I started, the older I get, the more I realize my greatest sin is not loving my Lord as I ought. That old hymn, is more and more my life song. We have not loved thee as we ought, nor cared that we are loved by thee. Thy presence we have coldly sought and feebly longed thy face to see. Lord, give a pure and loving heart to feel and own the love thou art. May God grant to all of us such a heart. My friends, remember who you are and who you belong to. Hi, I'm Pastor Joel of Heart City Church. On Jesus' final night with his disciples before going to the cross, Jesus surprised them as he inaugurated a new meal consisting of bread and wine. Now, it was Passover, the celebration, the holiday commemorating Israel's exodus out of Egypt, and the meal had always consisted of the Passover lamb and other elements like unleavened bread and bitter herbs. This was a feast that Israel had observed for over a thousand years. The nearest American equivalent to Passover, if there can be one, would perhaps be Thanksgiving, a holiday first proclaimed by George Washington in 1789 after America had truly established itself as free from England. Washington declared it as a day to give thanks to God, and for over 200 years we have set a turkey at the center of this holiday feast. This night with the Twelve would be like Jesus pushing aside the Thanksgiving turkey we just started eating and then putting a large pizza in its place while saying, guys, tonight we begin a new holiday tradition. Oh, and it's all about me. Imagine the jaws dropping in this Passover scene we find in Mark 14 verses 22 to 25. While they were eating, 
Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is quite an interesting meal Jesus inaugurates. Now, have you ever thought about how our lives make no sense without meals? In this devotional, I want us to think about food and meals for a moment. Do you realize when God made men, he made them hungry. God made us a hungry people. And to show his love, he provided our first parents with a world full of food, an unmatched banquet. Men were to consume and transform this world into their flesh and blood. Now, there was only one thing that they were to wait on to eat, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God gave them this single test to prove their trust in him. And what happened? We find that the whole world was wrecked by a meal from the wrong menu. Death entered into our world when Adam and Eve sinned. Men were now subject to death, and so was this world. So let me ask you something. Do you think that the food you have ate and will eat today is a source of life? Ever stop to think that every meal that you eat, you're actually communing with a dying world? Alexander Schmemann writes, For one who thinks food in itself is the source of life, eating is the communion with a dying world. It is communion with death. Food itself is dead. It is life that has died and must be kept in refrigerators like a corpse. Schmemann's point is that everything you eat had to die in order for you to live. Yeah, that corpses in the refrigerator part is not a pleasant thought before dinner, but it's true. In order for you to live, something else had to die. Or someone else. That is why Jesus came. Men were communing meals with a dying world that could never bring them life. The Passover lamb was actually just a picture of how God would later act to free men from a dying world. Jesus came to become our Passover lamb, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, to become the meal of life. And he inaugurated this meal as the first meal of the new creation. Because in his resurrection from the dead, his body and blood became true nourishment. That is why Jesus says in John 6, verses 54 and 55, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. What Jesus is saying is that saying that we heard as children, you are what you eat. So I'll ask you, my friend, what are you nourishing yourself with? Perhaps this week would be a good week to do a little fasting from this world, especially in light of Christ's passion. Think about what Jesus was teaching his disciples this night, how the eternal Son of God came to our dying world and laid down his own life, that we might have eternal life through him, because he became the true bread from heaven. Jesus offers himself as the life of the world for all who receive and also in anticipation for that great feast to come at the end of history. My friend, remember who you are and who you belong to. Hi, I'm Pastor Joel of Heart City Church. 
I've been serving Jesus in public ministry full-time for some years now, but when I come to the week of Christ's passion, my readings remind me to be humble about what I think I know about Jesus. In Matthew 26, Jesus tells his 12 disciples in verse 2, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. These 12 disciples have been with Jesus for years. He's been teaching them, and he has been starting to say and more and more and again and again that he must die on the cross. But despite his teachings, despite his warnings, the 12 remain oblivious to this. But there is one person who understands Jesus, who he is, why he has come, and she now knows what she must do. Matthew 26, verses 7 to 13. A woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Wow. There is a nameless woman who understands Jesus, that he's come to die, and she declares by her actions, I'm all in, Jesus. What do you mean, Joel? My friends, this is no ordinary bottle of perfume. It is a rare product from the Himalayas worth about $50,000. This may be her life savings, her inheritance. Imagine being there. Can you imagine watching her walk into the room with this $50,000 gift? Go straight over to your rabbi and pour it all out, drenching Jesus and overwhelming the whole room you're in with this fragrance. This may well be her life savings, but she says, I have no worries about tomorrow. I'm all in, Jesus. I'm putting all my chips on you as the Passover lamb come to die for us. How would you react? We read the disciples become indignant because they saw it as a waste. It could have been used to help the poor. Isn't that what Jesus would want? But Jesus looks at you as the nard runs down his kind face, and he reorients you. In fact, Jesus doesn't just defend her, but gives her the highest praise imaginable. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, she will be remembered for what she did. By the way, that's why 2,000 years later, a pastor from the wilds of Indiana is telling you about this woman today. I want to tell you, friend, what we can learn here is we need not worry what anyone might think or say when you go all in for Jesus, not even those who think they know Jesus best. There is a real irony that the disciples are worried about the poor being neglected when this gift was being used to serve the one who had become the poorest of all. And these fellows would abandon the one who became poor when Jesus is betrayed and arrested, leaving Jesus all alone to be accused, beaten, shamed, and sent to the cross. Friend, please ponder for a moment the cruel punishment that would act upon every one of Jesus' senses. 
at the cross, blood dripping from the thorny crown would blur his vision. His tongue would only taste the bitter taste of sour wine. His ears would ring with the jeers and mocking of sinners. And every nerve receptor in his body would be screaming from the pain and shock. And never forget, my friend, the worst pain, the emotional and spiritual agony as the Father turns his face and pours out his wrath, the wrath we deserve, upon his own Son. Yet through it all, Jesus has one communication that speaks love in the darkest of all hours. Jesus sniffs, and there it is, the love gift of the woman. The perfume lingers until his final breath. Do you see why Jesus calls it a beautiful thing that she has done? This is a gift that will follow him into the grave. There is a singularity to her love gift that no other human being has ever matched. She truly was all in. So let me ask you, does this nameless woman make you feel like your love for Jesus is too small? Friend, the word for you this morning is a reminder that the gospel doesn't begin with our love. No, the gospel tells us that God first loved us, which sets us free to love him. We began as loveless sinners, which is why Jesus came to go to the cross. And still today, we keep finding ourselves in the same room as those who keep easily missing it. So my friend, return to the cross. Admit your love is too small, because when you admit the bad news, you open the door to the good news, the gift of God in Christ, the gift that keeps on giving all the way to eternity. Remember who you are and who you belong to. This is News Source 1 Michiana, Elkhart South Bend, 